Hi, everybody. This is the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening today. There is a monkeypox outbreak underway in the U.S., and our goal today is to give you information about the illness and its prevention. We're publishing this episode on Thursday, the 14th of July. Shout out to France. And here's an epidemiological snapshot of the outbreak at the moment. Almost every state has at least one confirmed case, but most states number their cases in the single digits. There are about a dozen states where case numbers are in the double digits, and only three populous states number their cases in triple digits, and that's New York, Illinois, and California. Overall, there are about a thousand cases in the U.S., Around the globe, there are about 11,000 confirmed cases worldwide. Now, again, these figures are from the second week of July 2022. You can find links to updated case counts on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. Our guests today are experts in infectious disease processes and prevention, Rebecca Bartles is a doctor of public health, and she's the executive director of System Infection Prevention for Providence. She works alongside Rosemary Martin, the program manager of System Infection Prevention. Becca and Rosemary, thank you for taking the time to join me today. Glad you're here. Oh, thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. The first case of monkeypox was seen in the U.S., I think, about two months ago. Mm-hmm. What do we need to know now? Yeah, so um, I I think my first response here would be don't panic. Um, Although we haven't seen um, a a monkeypox outbreak in the U.S. of this size in the past, we are still talking about uh, 866 cases in the U.S. as of, uh, I believe, yesterday. I think on the heels of COVID, it probably feels a, a little scary for folks, but I don't think we can expect a, a monkeypox version of COVID. What's important here really is how monkeypox spreads. Um, it's different than um, than lots of other diseases that we see. And, um, and just knowing those simple things about a spread and transmission, I think will help, help folks to feel more comfortable and kind of have the key things they, they need to know to be safe. In addition, to what Becca covered, she is completely spot on. I would add that um, this is a disease we know much about. There are some differences between the virus um, that's circulating in the 2022 outbreak and the classic presentation of the virus. But um, I just think that uh, folks should know if they see that in the news that there's a difference, it doesn't mean that we're flying blind. Whenever there's an emerging pathogen, There's usually two buckets, what we know and what we don't know. But in this case, we're very fortunate in that the what we do know is a very large bucket. Um, Some information may change over time as they refine it um, through scientific study and evidence, but um, they they shouldn't um, panic or have fear. Um, feeling that once again, we're at square one with um, SARS-CoV-2 because that was a, a really novel virus compared to this. Right. I think if people cast their mind back to the beginning of the COVID pandemic, the word novel was used frequently in those early reports. 
you know, that this was a novel virus, meaning we hadn't seen it before. And what you're saying is that monkeypox is a virus we do know something about. It's seen frequently in Central and West Africa, but we're seeing it now in places where we've never seen it before. So tell me what we learned from that. So there are a couple things about this monkeypox virus that are unique, I think, that have contributed to why we're seeing a different distribution than we have in the past. Um, the first is this strain of monkeypox doesn't have the typical prodromal symptoms, meaning um, symptoms that a person may get before the rash begins. So normally we see fever, fatigue, uh, swollen lymph nodes, things like that. And um, in many cases with with this strain, we're, we're not seeing that. And um, so individuals are infectious once the rash develops and at times that can be the, the, the first presenting symptom. Um, we also had a, a couple of super spreader events that occurred back in uh, June, I believe. Beginning of May. Mm-hmm. And that contributed with uh, large groups of people being together, having contact, and then uh, redistributing themselves back into other countries. And um, so the majority of cases that we've seen in the U.S. have been travel related, um, although we have seen some person to person transmission. The majority of those initial cases were, were following travel. Many of the early cases in the U.S. involved men who have sex with men. And some of the spread was within very tight-knit communities within that larger community, making people believe that this was a sexually transmitted infection where monkeypox is normally not thought of as a STI. Sure. Yeah, I think the the virus is spread through direct contact with the infectious rash, scabs, body fluids, etc. And so, um, you know, the virus being spread through sexual activity makes sense when you think about it from that perspective. It's spread via contact. Um, the fact that the virus has been spread and that um, sort of community of men who have intimate contact with other men, I think is, it's not um, indicative of any change in the virus. I think it's just indicative of the circumstance um, where the initial spread occurred. And um, over time, as we're seeing, um, what we can expect to see cases of monkeypox outside of that community as well. Yeah, and I'd like to add on to what Becca just said is that um, the CDC was very clear that um, there's not really evidence of it spreading through semen or vaginal fluid. So to really wrap your head around the sexual con- uh, contact aspect of it, that's really more related to that direct um, long duration contact um, that's that's known for monkeypox. It's a really good point. I, my mind goes back to the early days of the HIV epidemic where we saw the way in which stigma could be attached to a viral outbreak and targeting communities um, as if they were responsible for the illness rather than uh, in victims of, of the virus. I'm probably not making sense there. No, I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, the stigmatism, you saw it even with uh, SARS-CoV-2 because it, it was first detected in Wuhan, China, 
that um, it was being called the Chinese virus. People were reacting violently towards um, Chinese in America, not wanting to go to their restaurants. So we do have to get away from reacting to where it was first detected. Um, this was even something that was experienced by South Africa when they detected the Omicron variant. Um, they were the first to detect it, but then it became the South Africa um, virus. And so we really do have to get away from um, blaming the geographical setting of where it was discovered. And we have to move towards, great, we've detected it. Now, how do we um, interrupt transmission and bring this to a close? I think it's unfortunate that the virus has been identified in this community. And I think it's, you know, it's it's really just a matter of happenstance um, that, that that is where the virus emerged. Um, but it's it's important for us to, at least for the time being, to recognize that this is an epidemiologic risk factor. And so um, as we, we look to identify patients and isolate them early on um, in, in their disease presentation, it's still an important epidemiologic risk factor for us. Over time, that will become less the case as um, as the disease spreads, you know, out, outside of that that smaller community. Um, but it's part of the CDC's criteria for case identification. Um, so looking at the symptoms and then looking at the epidemiologic risk factors of um, having been in contact with somebody with a known case of monkeypox, having contact with you know uh, certain types of animals from certain locations, and then um, still remaining as that criteria of men who have uh, closer intimate contact with other men. So where do we stand? Um, as I understand it, uh, monkeypox is in the same general family as smallpox, and there are existing vaccines for smallpox. Um, do we believe those are going to be effective? Um, yes. So the there are two vaccines that exist right now. Um, one is a monkeypox specific vaccine. Um, but most folks are wondering about the, um, the vaccine against smallpox. So the vaccine that um, many folks remember their parents having, or maybe they've had it if they're in that age range, um, they wonder, I've had this um, vaccine against smallpox, what is my protection? And the protection is actually 85% against monkeypox. And so there is a lot of good coverage there. Um, but I believe what the United States is investing in now is they are trying to get their hands on the actual monkeypox vaccine, the vaccine, and it's called Geneus, I believe. And it's um, it's a vaccine for monkeypox. And that's what we have a limited supply of. Um, and that's what the U.S., I believe, is hoping to have a million dose of um, come this fall. What should someone do if they think they've been exposed? Let's start with what they shouldn't do. They shouldn't go to the grocery store and touch everything in the aisle and um, <laughs> or, or go to church and shake everybody's hand. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, if if there's a a an, a known exposure, so, you know, having been exposed with somebody that has a confirmed case of monkeypox, um, likely at that point, the individual will have heard from the health department uh, because the health department is still 
really leaning in on contact tracing and and managing cases because um, the number in the U.S. is is still manageable for that. Um, home isolation is is the name of the game, um, something we've all gotten very good at since COVID. Um, but really remaining isolated until. Um, the uh, the the transmission window is over, so um, anytime uh, you know if the individual becomes symptomatic, then remaining isolated until the rash is fully healed, a fresh layer of skin is formed over it, etc. So, can I ask about um, the hospitals where you have responsibility? What caution are you suggesting for folks in those healthcare facilities? Sure. So we have worked to communicate very, very broadly the personal protective equipment and isolation protocols that are used if a patient presents with a suspected case of monkeypox. Um, that involves wearing a glove, gowns, and actually uh, the, the CDC is recommending use of a respirator um, for patients with monkeypox, even though airborne transmission is... Um, is, is not the, the routine route of transmission for this disease. I think that is sort of an extra layer of precaution. Um, we also are working within our organization to, um, to go live with an, uh, an automated screening, infectious risk screen um, specific to monkeypox that our facilities in higher risk areas where the um, incidence of cases is, is higher would allow, be able to to opt in and utilize that screening as well. Is that for providers or for patients? It's for patients. And so it, it basically triggers um, the individual doing the intake to ask questions about rash at the time that a person presents. And then based on um, the response to that question, there are cascading questions to help us determine if, if the patient may require isolation. You know, there's no ignoring the fact that we've all lived through a pandemic for the last couple of years. And I'm wondering, in some way, does that make it easier to deal with an outbreak like this? Because the public is already kind of tuned in to the sorts of things that are going to be expected in terms of prevention efforts. Absolutely. I think the, the culture around infection prevention has shifted tremendously in the last two years as um, we've, we've moved from a culture where isolation, quarantine, epidemiology, words like that aren't used very frequently to their part of the, the human lexicon now. And um, folks carry alcohol gel in their cars and masks in their cars. And um, we've become a much more infection prevention sort of oriented community, which is terrific. And it definitely helps in our response when something novel or um, or a disease that we haven't seen in this area arises because folks have the basic tools that they need to be able to respond. It also helps within our healthcare organizations that we've had this, this really real life drill, I suppose, uh, for the last two years of responding to a pandemic. And um, for my 17 career prior or 17 year career prior to COVID, it was always exercises in preparing for pandemic. And, um, and once we faced an actual pandemic, there are lots of lessons learned of things that we wouldn't ever have thought to prepare for um, that now we're really good at 
because of COVID. So definitely gives us a leg up. And I, I think that it's easier to be less reactive and less responsive because we have a, a, pr a perspective that we didn't have prior. Rosemary, I'm interested to, to hear your thoughts on that too. I, I totally agree, Becca. One of the one of the silver linings or great things that came out of um, um, preparing for SARS-CoV-2 and living through that is um, the amount of structure and processes we built um, to deal with emerging pathogens. So now um, there's a lot of monkeypox build it like COVID. Monkeypox do it like COVID. Do you remember in COVID when we did this? We're going to do something similar in monkeypox. And people have that reference. Um, they may lose it over time if we have um, some break between pandemics, but this one came on the heel of it and it's very fresh in folks' minds. And so I think COVID has really helped us um, break away from thinking in our, in our boxes of this is how routine care is and has challenged us to think of um, other processes that we need to put in place and develop for um, emergencies. And I think it just gave us this readiness that we just didn't have before. And so I feel a more calmness when dealing with monkeypox versus when we were dealing with COVID for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's been 30 years now that Lori Garrett, a former colleague of mine at NPR, wrote a book called The Coming Plague in which she described the way in which air travel will change the way infectious diseases work in our world. Um, and you know, everything that Lori wrote 30 years ago has turned out to be true. You can get on a plane somewhere and land half a world away 12 hours later and spread an infectious agent that in the old days may have been isolated to a village, but today it can move from a village to the world in a matter of hours. And given that fact, um, do you think that even after COVID, um, are we prepared? Um, there has been criticism that the initial response to monkeypox was slow. Has the public health response been adequate? That's a difficult question to answer. Um, these are these are tough situations and scenarios to respond to. And, you know, our colleagues in public health are amazing professionals and, and experts that are, um, you know, working tirelessly to, to protect the, the health of the U you know, of citizens of the U S at the same time, they're only able to work within the resources that are provided to them. And I think that we have not, as a, a country prioritized public health resources. We've not prioritized healthcare in general. And, um, and what we see in response to um, both COVID and monkeypox is a slower response than what we'd like to see because the resources just aren't there for us to act as quickly as we need to. So yes, there is opportunity for sure to um, to build those programs in a way that make them more effective and more efficient um, but you know we, we we have to prioritize our our resources in that way yeah i don't want to let the two of you go without asking you about 
COVID um, briefly, there are subvariants of uh, Omicron out there that are causing most of the infections and most of the hospitalizations now in the U.S. Um, what can you tell folks about BA5, for instance? Um, and do you think we might be moving back to a posture of, of um, communities suggesting masking and other contact precautions? So BA5, um, along with BA4, they're the newest uh, variants that have come out. There's even a newer one called BA2.75, I believe, out of India. Um, all these variants, what they actually have in common is um, fitness. So a variant can't be successful unless it's better at transmitting um compared to the prior variant. That's why you see um, this increase in contagiousness. Um, it still lands in the house of Omicron. And so it's still an Omicron variant. So there's a lot of similarities with Omicron. However, many of the differences are, um, are eye-catching. For instance, uh, BA4 and 5 um, have a right right now in the scientific literature, they have uh, um, great mechanisms in place on their spike protein to evade any immunity that we have developed um, from prior infections, as well as um, minimal, at this point, we get minimal immunity um, from our vaccines um, against Omicron 4 and 5. Now, this is the vaccine piece is kind of tricky in that it may not prevent infection, but it may have allowed us to develop what's called memory cells that can, that can prevent severity of disease. So while you get infected, you, you have a, a better chance of not getting a severe disease. And so the vaccines are still absolutely 100% worth getting. Um, but having said that, your question about masks, it, it really is at this point, I get the sense that um, there probably won't be a mask mandate. There'll be mask recommendations, but I can't see our government going back to a mask mandate. Um, but masking will help prevent reinfection. It will help um, prevent the spread of BA4 and BA5. And there's new literature coming out about long COVID where it, they're demonstrating different um, scientific groups are demonstrating that as you get reinfected, the more reinfections you get, the more um, possible brain fog, which is related to brain damage, could occur. So there are reasons to not get reinfected over and over, and a mask would really help with that. Um, whether there'll be a mask mandate, that is kind of hard to say. I think that's a really important point, Rosemary, that it's getting reinfected with COVID um, is not innocuous, right? It's it's not without risk. And the likelihood that the the infectious symptoms that you suffer will be lower than with your, your previous illness um, is high and you likely won't get as sick, but these long COVID risks and the uh, the risks to brain health over time are significant and um, and a good reason to continue to try and avoid infection. 
Rebecca and Rosemary, I'm really grateful for you taking the time and grateful for your expertise. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. That's Rosemary Martin right there. She works alongside Rebecca Bartles, who's the executive director for System Infection Prevention for Providence. Rosemary's the program manager. We reach them in Seattle. We put together some resources for you, pointing you to constantly updated information on monkeypox. You'll find that on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. The podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Connect with us on Twitter, where we're human underscore caring. The program is produced by Melody Fawcett and Scott Acord. We have research help from medical librarians, Carrie Grinstead, Seema Bakta, Amanda Schwartz, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks so much for listening. Be well. Thank you.